Hey, I'm David Crabtree, lead pastor at Calvary Church. Welcome to our podcast. I hope you'll find something every week that inspires you to dig deeply into God's Word and reach for the unmet potentials that lie within you. You can subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen and never miss an update. Hope you enjoy the message. Let's look to the Lord together. Heavenly Father, this morning we pray that our hearts would be open now to receive your word. Challenge us, I pray, Lord, with this seminal proclamation that speaks to the essence of who we are and how we can move forward in this day. I pray, Lord, that our confidence would rest in you as never before. Cause faith to rise in our hearts. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Let the word of God bring forth that good fruit in us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, two weeks ago, we entered a season of transition here at Calvary Church as I will be stepping into a new role with our district council here in North Carolina, and Calvary will be seeking a new lead pastor for a new season. I determined to use my last nine Sundays in the pulpit to speak to themes that I consider to be essential to a healthy church. Nine things I must say before I go. Two weeks ago in the first message, we looked at the text from Daniel chapter two. He changes times and seasons. We look to the Lord as the one who directs our paths in life. Then last week, we looked at that comforting promise that God made to Joshua when he said, I will be with you. As Joshua was facing an incredible challenge, God said, I'm going to be with you and we can have this confidence as we walk, as we walk in his providence, he will be with us. This morning, I want us to look now to the gospels in Matthew chapter 16. And we want to look at this unshakable declaration of Christ and his mission Captured in these five words, I will build my church. I entered the ministry with my eyes wide open. Two great grandfathers were preachers, both grandfathers preachers. My father, preacher, three uncles were preachers. Four cousins are men of the cloth. Two in-laws serve the preacher's life. So I can't say I didn't know what I was getting into when I accepted the call to embrace the life of a pastor. Now, as the 40-year milestone is visible on my pastoral horizon, I can't help a bit of a retrospective. With few exceptions, I have loved pastoral ministry. I've dedicated babies and now I'm dedicating the babies' babies. I've known friendship that runs deep and love that goes the distance. I've known a few pinnacles along the way and I've received a few honors along the way and if in some degree possibly I've satisfied man's flawed measure of success, I've enjoyed a little bit of that. I'm keenly aware that I have walked a path of blessing. Those proverbial twins, goodness and mercy, have literally stalked me all the days of my life. I'm grateful to God. Yet there have been some dark days, days when I didn't think I could cut it, days when I really wanted to chuck it, days where I was afraid I might lose it. Discouragement is an occupational hazard in pastoral ministry. 
Doubts, though rarely admitted among the pastorate, are almost always present. So I've known some clouded horizons and I've known some sudden storms and I've known tests and trials. I've questioned the rightness of my place and attitude and time and track and decisions. Discouragement comes to us all. Often it comes on the coattails of our greater successes. On Mount Carmel, you might remember that Elijah was all blood, fire, and rain on Sunday. But Jezebel called him out on Monday and he ran like a scared rabbit. He took on all the prophets of Baal and dealt with Ahab and experienced the most victorious day I think anyone could experience in doing the work of God. And the next morning, discouragement, despair, fear, depression settled upon his soul. And he ran and he ran from Jezebel. It was a shock for me to discover when I entered the ministry that Jezebel is a church-going woman. She shows up more often than Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. You see, the Bethany crowd, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, they've got a house out at the beach, and they're gone at least four or five weekends out of the summer. But Jezebel, she never misses a Sunday. I've discovered, I've discovered that all biblical characters go to church. In a church, you'll find everyone from the rich young ruler to Judas. You'll find the fiery Jeremiah, and you'll find all 11 of Joseph's brothers. We, we've got them all. If I were speaking to seminarians this morning, I would tell them, get a leg up on knowing your people before you even meet your congregation. Just read your Bible. Open up, and you're going to meet your congregation there. We've got the good, the bad, and the difficult. There have only been a few Sundays when I didn't want to go to church. There have only been a few days when I felt that someone had either quenched my anointing or maybe Doubting Thomas had showed up at the board meeting. But in those days, in those times, in every storm, five words have preserved me. They're words of promise and they're words of comfort Jesus spoke them first to Peter, but in the darkest, I mean the darkest hours of my soul, he has spoken them to me also. When I've wanted to give up, he has spoken them to me. When I felt like I wasn't cutting it and when I felt like I wanted to quit, he has spoken these words to me. Jesus said, I will build my church. I'll build my church. There have been times in ministry when those five words were all I had. And I tell you without hesitation, I have learned this truth. These five words in those moments are all you need. So turn with me in the text, if you will, to Matthew chapter 16. And here's context. We find Jesus strolling with his disciples among the many pagan temples at Caesarea Philippi. Now the banks of the river that flowed through that ancient city held many competing temples. Through the ages, it has been a hotbed of idolatry. Caesar was only the latest pretender to establish his shrine there. And so Jesus, as he's walking along with his disciples, he's in the midst of all of this idolatry, all of these false gods. And he says, well, tell me, fellas, who do men say that I am? 
And we read it in Matthew 16 and verse 16. Simon Peter answered and said, probably, probably one of the most victorious moments in Peter's life. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now Jesus answered and said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This text holds three truths that go to the very core of our faith. First, take note here of the essential confession of the church. The essential confession of the church. Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Anyone who has been placed by God to stand behind a sacred desk is charged with this essential confession. Where this confession is absent, there is no gospel whatsoever. He is Christ, the Son of God. Not, not he was Jesus, an historical figure. He is Christ. He is the Lord of the church. Not he was Jesus, a noble teacher. He is Christ, he is king, he is Lord. He is our faithful intercessor. He's the only way to God and he's the way maker for the saints of God. He is present, he is present right now whenever and wherever two or three gather in his name. We do not stand as those remembering the great I was. We are living, we are living oracles to the great I am. He is the one and only Christ God's anointed savior of the world. This is our essential confession. The church's mission, her very reason for being is to make this essential confession. Jesus Christ, only begotten son of God, only hope for the world. This is who we are. It's no surprise then that this truth is under withering attack in our post-Christian culture. To believe in one God exclusively revealed in Jesus Christ is politically incorrect. We're called to faith in politics. That's the problem these days. We're called to faith in ourselves. But does the scripture call us to such things? Are we called to faith in politics or in ourselves or are we called to a faith that transcends us and transcends the political sphere? Why do we allow people who don't know him to inform our thoughts of him? Hollywood star makers have cast him as a long dead misguided mystic. Washington spin masters have demoted him to a lesser role, another dusty prophet among the many sages and holy men that have wandered the pages of history. Harvard dons have reduced him to an historical footnote and they've mocked his deity and liberal theologians have disowned him completely and disclaimed his holy word. In our culture, if you invoke a higher power, all of America will bow its head in reverence. But if you make the statement, Jesus Christ is Lord of all and the only hope for the world, the only way to God, you will invite censure. This is our world. That this essential confession of faith is not fully embraced in the church is a modern day tragedy and heresy. 
there seems to be a bit of confusion among the rank and file in the American church over the exclusive claims of Jesus. Let that confusion not be found among us. He's the way, he's the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by Jesus. Either that's the truth or it's a lie. The gospel stands or falls on that exclusivity. The church that Jesus said he would build is built on the confession of his deity, his lordship, his sovereignty, or the church is not built at all. It becomes something unchurch. We're increasingly a nation of syncretists working through synthesis to come up with a God who is socially palatable and scientifically plausible. But our synthetic gods are silent as death. They have nothing to say, absolutely nothing to offer. We need a God who speaks. And the author of Hebrews makes it very clear that in Christ alone, that life-giving voice can be heard. Listen from Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2. Long ago, And many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophet. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. That's a load of theology. The bottom line for us this morning is this. He is a God who speaks. It's Christ. God has spoken in these last days through Christ. It's Christ or it's nothing at all. Church, we exist to exalt Jesus Christ and to declare him to the world as the only way to God, the only certain hope of eternal life. So Peter offered the essential confession of the church. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. So must we. Now next I see here the inevitable construction of the church. The inevitable construction of the church. Verse 18, I will build my church where Christ is proclaimed the Lord of the church. He has committed himself to build the church. He will build his church. Jesus said that his yoke is easy and his burden is light, yet at times I have to tell you, I have just about buckled under the weight of trying to build his church. You see, it's really easy for us pastors to forget, easy to forget whose church it is and by whose power it must be built. He is determined to build his church. The church is his plan, his desire, his longing, his heart to build his church. He's the builder. He's the builder. Religious art through the centuries has depicted Jesus often with lambs in his arm or a staff or a halo. But have you ever seen Jesus with blueprints and maybe a hard hat? Have you ever seen the master builder as he surveys a desolate wasteland? You know this about a creative builder. He can look at something that everybody else calls a dump and he can see beauty in it. Indeed, the builder sees beauty in the desolate landscape of America today. I have seen him, this master builder, blueprints in hand, gazing out over a shattered city. I've seen him building in the ruins of communism. I've seen him building a mighty church on martyr's blood. Have you considered 
how he labors over his building project, the church. It's according to his own design. And he meets that design with his divine ability, with perfect planning, with uninterrupted supply and power, power to dig, power to lift high, power to demolish, power to annex, and above all, above all, the power to finish. I pray the master builder remove all fear from your mind, all doubt from your soul, all weakness from your resolve. He has not forgotten his church in the midst of this pandemic, in the midst of this chaos, in the midst of this cultural decay. He has a marked set of plans in his hands for the church even now. I want to remind you, those of you who look around and possibly you're my age or you're older and you say, look, in the, look at what has happened to the world. Oh, everything's coming undone. It seems that everything's falling apart. Do you realize, have you stopped to consider not only that God has the power to accomplish the purpose and the plan that he has set in place, but he made you to live in this day. Find your equipping power in Christ Jesus. Be the church today. You've been called to be the church today. Don't sit around whining. We have wasted far too much time complaining about sinners being sinners. It's time for us to rise up as the church and find that empowering touch, walking lockstep with the builder as he completes his plan in the earth. I pray the master builder bring resurrection to power, resurrection power over the dead dream that maybe once burned in your heart for the church. I pray the master builder shout from the heavens until it rings in the drafting room of every believer's soul. It shall be done according to his will. I will build my church, he said. Building is always costly. Oh, do I know this? Do I know this? I've been through four building programs, I'll call it four and a half with some of the remodel work. I can tell you this, it always takes longer than you think. It always costs far more than you think. There are always things that you've missed along the way and it'll keep you up at night. It'll really keep you up at night. Building is costly. Building eats up commitment and it burns human capital. It wearies, it really wearies our spiritual, our spiritual muscles. I don't know what the stats are in today's preaching world, but when I was coming up as a young preacher, we heard it time and time again. The numbers of pastors who left churches after building programs because they were exhausted. Well, I don't know how true that is today, but I will tell you this. Building is exhausting. And if it were not for the renewal God promises to those of us who will wait upon him, we would be on our own and out the door in no time whatsoever. But the master builder has already spoken to this issue in the Old Testament. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sins. I will heal their land. They that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. Who's in charge of this thing anyways? It's the builder. It's the builder. Tearing down is easy and tearing down is cheap. I once heard it said a monkey with a match can destroy more in an hour than a thousand wise men can build in a whole year. 
In fact, to, to destroy, one doesn't need a hammer, a match, a bomb, a wrecking ball. All you have to do is do nothing. Do nothing. When does an unfinished construction project become a ruin? When the labor stops. I've had some time in this layoff. I've had some time to look at some YouTube videos and I've really got kind of caught up and I don't know why I'm drawn to them, but the, these YouTubes that show you abandoned places. Somebody will go walking through the woods someplace and, and you'll come upon an abandoned skating rink or an abandoned racetrack. Or that, that there's, there's all of these places that they're finding that have just been left. And you know what happens when you leave something unattended? When you just ignore it and you neglect it? The land will take it back again. And it's fascinating to see these guys walking through the woods with their camera and finally they, they come upon a place that's been abandoned since the 1960s and there are, you can see the outline of it, but there are trees growing everywhere and vines covering up everything and the concrete is breaking down and the signs no longer, it's destroyed. All you have to do is nothing. When the labor stops, it becomes a ruin. You and I have been called to walk lockstep with the builder and as we walk with him and continue the labor, his blessing and his power will flow through us to complete the task he's called us to. When the labor stops, it's over. Don't stop working with the builder. And don't miss this, friends. He's not stopping. He's not slowing his pace. He's not changing his plans. He's not laying off his worker. He's not bankrupt. He doesn't need a permit, and he's never going to quit. If God Almighty has declared his intention to build his church, how can we walk off the job? Five words reveal the inevitable construction of the church. I will build my church, he said. This leads on, finally, to the, in the invincible character of the church. This leads on, finally, to the invincible character of the church. Verse 18, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. God has always had a people and he will always have a people. From the very beginning, his kingdom has advanced in the face of adversity. Our adversary, the devil, has not faltered in his dogged pursuit, his highest goal to deceive all of the nations for this purpose, to rob God of his glory. From the beginning, the Bible says the devil is a liar and a thief. John 10, 10 says the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Through all manner of evil, Satan has attempted to destroy God's people. He has concentrated temptation until the nations are swimming in a cesspool of filth. He's employed tyrants and lunatics to try and wipe the church off the map, but this church has proven to be particularly stubborn. I like that word, stubborn. Out of the ashes and out of the chaos and out of genocidal rage and failing kingdoms, the church rises. The denial of God cannot erase him from the longing of the human heart. Every empire that has set itself on foot to crush the church has itself been ground to dust. Every philosophy that denies him will ultimately be denied and ridiculed among men. Every ideology that ignores him finds no enduring truth with which to sustain itself. 
Gibraltar is going to crumble before the church is conquered. She is inevitable, invincible, inescapable, enduring, overcoming. The Bible says she is endued with power. She is entrusted with redemption. She is encouraged by the spirit. She is engaged in a winning warfare and she is equipped unto every good work. God is calling us to be particularly stubborn in this dark age. Karl Barth could have been preaching to millennials when he said this. The world which we confront today is aggressively pagan. Many influences in modern life work to undermine the Christian view and subtly convert even church people from an outright Christian faith. The only adequate answer is for Christians to recover the New Testament power of spiritual aggression. The only adequate answer is for Christians to recover the New Testament power of spiritual aggression. Our culture, our culture is in a downward spiral, but the culture will not prevail. Our nation is spiritually low, but his kingdom advances against the darkest night. Our testimony has been sullied by compromise and scandal but his blood has not lost its power to cleanse us. His name has not lost its power to save us. His word has not lost its power to conquer kingdoms. His covenant endures, and his church will yet rise up to trample the gates of hell and declare his inevitable glory. This church is his church. We are his people, and his word and his spirit lead us. Calvary Church is not my church. It's never been my church. Never was, never will be. It can never be possessed by any man or woman. Therefore, let us align our hearts and our hopes with the builder whose work is going to endure for all eternity. Jesus promised He declared it with absolute authority. It is settled in the heavens for all generations. I will build my church. To that end, we must be absolutely dedicated, fully consecrated, totally surrendered. St. Francis prayed, and how the prayer was captured, we can't be certain. But he prayed, make me an instrument of thy peace. I guess I know it well because I had to sing it in a choir when I was a kid. But the phrase has stuck in my mind. It's it's indelibly stamped. Make me an instrument of thy peace. An instrument. A tool. A vessel. Even a commodity to be spent in the building of his church. As we turn a chapter here at Calvary Church, as we step into a brand new day, we may be changing personalities and we may be changing leaders, but we are not even for a moment stepping apart from the mission that has been laid out for us or the leader who ultimately gets us there. He builds his church. 
And Father, I pray in the name of Jesus, as we move forward at Calvary Church into the destiny that you are unpacking for us, may we follow you, O Lord, yielding ourselves to be instruments and vessels and tools and commodities for the building up of your kingdom in this earth until you come. I pray, O Lord, that we would be fully surrendered to your will and purpose. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. It looks like it won't be too long before we're allowed to gather together again in possibly some limited numbers. We may have to run more services to make it all happen, but it it doesn't seem to be that far beyond our reach. I am so looking forward to that day. Of course, we'll communicate with you and give you plenty of notice when that's coming, but I look so forward to that day when we can share the same space together and share the goodness of God, his grace and his mercy for days ahead that I believe are going to be the greatest days Calvary Church has ever known. Remember what Jesus said, I will build my church.